beginning at the first verse, Matthew writes, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. When Jesus entered, entered Jerusalem on that day, the, the response was enormous huge. Uh, Thousands of people are on the road. The Jewish historian Josephus said that during the first century, about a quarter of a million lambs were slain during Passover week every year. According to the law, uh, up to 10 people could share in a lamb. If you had two in a family and five in a family, the, the two could share a lamb. Well, if, if 10 people are eating on a lamb, that's 2.5 million people. Estimates are that at least a million people showed up for the three great feasts in Jerusalem. This is the day after the Sabbath. It's the first day of the week. Nobody's traveled on the Sabbath. This is the day when it all begins. And, and so th- this isn't just a few hundred people accompanying Jesus on the road. This is rush hour. This is wall-to-wall people people who are absolutely packed and their excitement carries them away we ought to remember that these thousands of people shouting out hosanna which means god lord save us by the way shouting out blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord which is a a messianic phrase hosanna to the son of david the son of david is the messiah the savior who is coming These people, the thousands who are shouting out, are not going to be shouting out good things by the end of the week. They're not necessarily those crying for Jesus' crucifixion in the courtyard. What we know is that about 50 days later at the Feast of Pentecost, there were 120 gathered in the upper room. We know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared between his resurrection and his ascension to 500 people at more than one time. When you compare 500 people to tens of thousands on the road, 500 is a a fraction. It's a small fraction of those who are in Jerusalem. This is often called the triumphant entry because of the excitement that people have. And it it really focuses, that that name really focuses on verses 4 and 5. That's where uh, Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
This is the prophet Zechariah. And he's quoting from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9 through 12 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Well, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he sent his disciples for this donkey. This wasn't accidentally fulfilled. It's, it's not that these things took place and in the aftermath of it, Matthew and the others got around and they started thinking about the Old Testament and they thought, you know, that seems to have been what Zechariah talked about. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He calls to mind by this, by this uh, visual picture, he calls to mind a prophet or the promise that God had made through the prophet to the people of Israel when they were still in captivity. They're just beginning to be released from captivity in Assyria, 550 years beforehand. Now, 550 years is a long, long time to wait. 550 years ago, it was 1468. Gutenberg's printing press was less than 20 years old. Gutenberg would die that year. Leonardo da Vinci was 16. Columbus was 17. The discovery of the New World was 24 years off. There were no Bibles in the English language, first of all, because there were no Bibles in any language except Latin and Greek, and, and only Greek if you happen to be in the, the East. And second, there was no English language. It was still Middle English. Modern English wouldn't even begin to be developed for another 50 years. It's 150 years before the translation of the King James Version. 550 years is a long time. 550 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, God made a promise through the prophet. He said, I'm sending a savior to you, a king. He's righteous, he's humble, he's gentle. He is going to end war and conflict. He's going to bring peace to the world, peace to the nations. He's going to fulfill the covenant of Moses. He's going to free those who have been imprisoned. He's going to restore to them double what they've lost. And he is going to accomplish justice through his people. The people have been waiting 550 years for this to take place. I really am not sure what happened a year ago. But because of their situation and because of the enormity of this promise, they had kept it alive for 550 years. So that Jesus didn't have to get on the donkey and then stop and say, you realize, of course, I'm on the donkey. 
Anybody got a scroll of Zechariah? Look up verse 9 for me. See? He simply gets on the donkey, is riding in, and they put together what they knew of his teaching and what they knew of his miracles and his ministry, him on the donkey, and they make the connection. They'd been waiting a long time. It's only natural that during that time of waiting, the question that they would have is the question we started out with. When? When? When, Lord, are you going to do this? When will the promise be fulfilled? When will the king come? When will the Savior come? When are you going to uh, cut off the chariots and the war horses from from Israel? When are you going to bring peace to, to Israel? When are you going to bring peace to the world? When are you going to reign, Lord, from sea to shining sea, from the river Euphrates off into the distance? When are you going to set the prisoners free? When are you going to accomplish justice? And he never told them when. He didn't give them that detail. And that's partly true, I think, because God's promises are so sure that the promise itself is as good as the fulfillment. God's promises are so certain that the promise itself should cause the same joy as the fulfillment. We should not respond to the waiting as though there's any doubt, as though there's any question about what the Lord is going to do. He commands Israel in Zechariah 9.9 to live as though it it had already been fulfilled. That's why he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Of Jerusalem. He says to his people, I want you to live as though what I've promised has already taken place. I want you to have that kind of a joy. And he expects his people to believe him. He'd proven himself over and over and over again. He had created all things. He had made a promise to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world by a flood, but I'm going to spare you and, the fa- you and your family. And he kept that promise. He called Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a nation. Abraham is childless. He says, how are you going to make me a nation when I don't have a son? And God says, I'll give you a son. And he gave him a son. God made a promise to Isaac and to Jacob, I'm going to continue the line through you. And he preserved them. God said to Abraham, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years and then I'll bring them out. And it happened. God says to his people in Egypt, I'm going to take you out through the wilderness and I'm going to keep you alive. And he did. God proved himself over and over and over again. In fact, there's only two kinds of promises in the Bible. I don't know how many promises there are. I haven't counted them, which is odd because I'm the kind of guy that likes to count those types of things. But I don't know how many promises there are. But if you listed every promise that God has made, there's only two kinds. There's the promises he's already fulfilled. And there's the promises he will fulfill. He never misses. He never forsakes one. He never speaks with no purpose. He never misses his target. That's what he wanted his, his people to understand. I've made this promise. You can shout aloud. You can rejoice and sing because me making the promise is as good as me fulfilling the promise. It can't help but be fulfilled. The writer of Hebrews, remember, he's, he's writing to Jews who were raised in the law, raised under the, the, the old covenant, and have come to Christ in faith. 
And he's making an appeal to them to maintain their faith in Christ and not go back to the old system of doing things. And so when he speaks in chapter 11 about faith, he's not speaking about a a Gentile Christian church age understanding of faith. He's talking about Old Testament faith. And he says this in verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is, faith means believing that what God has promised, he will do, and that his promises are so certain that his promise is as good as the fulfillment. He will bring every word to pass. Regardless of what we see, regardless of what we feel at the time. As you read Hebrews 11, and it's a great chapter, as you read in other places where the scripture talks about faith, it's clear that faith has nothing to do with what we see, with what we experience, with what we can touch or taste or, or feel. Faith is not, is not concerned with how something looks or with the appearance of things. Faith is simply concerned with what God has said. And what God has said is, is more real than anything that is around us. If you remember, the prophet Elijah was surrounded at one point and there was a young man with him and they're surrounded by the enemy. And the young man says, this is my translation, we're going to die. And Elijah says, Lord, show him. And the Lord opens his eyes and he sees that they are surrounded by angels. See, what's real for God is more real than what's real for us. And the promises of God are more real than our reality. Faith isn't concerned with what we're experiencing right now. Faith is only concerned with what God has said in his word. What he has said is true. I once heard a naval officer say this was in a video. He said to his men, if I tell you that a puppy can pull a freight train, don't ask how, just hook him up. If I tell you a puppy can pull a freight train, don't ask how, just hook him up. Well, God says to Israel, if I tell you that I'm going to send a Savior, I'm going to send a Savior. For Israel, the question wasn't how, the question was when. Jesus has made promises to us as well. I think probably the best one's in John 14, 3. John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to his men the night of his arrest. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The the return of Christ is our great hope. It is our great hope. It's common now, even in the church, for people to say, if you're so focused on the second coming, then, then you're, you're just living this fatalistic life. Yeah, you bet. It's a fatalistic life. We live in a world where people march into schools and shoot children. And not to put too fine a point on it, we live in a world where those teenage children go out and protest the death by gun, and you know that of the hundreds of thousands of, of girls who are out there protesting, many have had abortions. So you have people who murder people protesting the murder of people. That's our world. You bet it's fatalistic. You bet I want Jesus to come. He said, 
I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We didn't invent this. This isn't our idea. It's not that Jesus said, well, guys, okay, I'm going to die on the cross and then I'll rise from the dead and I'll, I'll see you sometime. And they said, oh, well, aren't you coming back? Couldn't you give us a promise about coming back? It wasn't their idea. It was his idea. It was his idea. He's coming back for each of his own. He's coming back for all of us. He's coming back for each of us. The the second of the last verse of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. And John says, no, Lord, that's fatalistic. John says, amen, come quickly. This is John. This is John who's seen the birth of the church, who, yes, has seen the other apostles uh, martyred, but has seen the spread of the faith and the, the message of Jesus Christ beginning from this little band of scared men until now it's, it's become a, a movement throughout the world that he knew. And John's attitude was, yes, amen, come, Lord Jesus. See, that's our great hope. So it's only natural that we would be like the Hebrews and we would say, so when? There, there were times when our kids were little, when I was praying, Lord, now would be a good time. I don't want them to have to go through the pain of this world. Now that we've got grandkids, there are times I'm tempted to pray, Lord, come now so that my grandkids don't have to go through the pain of this world. It's scarier now. Those of you who are grandparents understand. Those of you who are not grandparents can't understand yet, but grandparents are more frightened than parents are. We've had a little bit more time, and we've seen a little bit more change take place. So when... That's a question that Jesus' disciples asked in, in, uh, in the book of Acts. They said to him, right before he ascended to heaven, he spent 40 days after the resurrection appearing to people, talking with people, one at a time, two at a time, three at a time, 500 at a time. And then 40 days after, he ascends to heaven. He's out there on the hillside and ready to go. And they say, oh, wait, one more question. Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel now? And he says to them, it's none of your business. Now, what he actually said was, it is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, which being interpreted means it's none of your business. God has fixed those times and seasons. That means he set them. He's carved them in stone. They're they're unchangeable. Jesus will return according to the Father's will. The timing of his return is not for us to know. Maybe it's not for us to know simply so that none of us can say God is accountable to us. He's not accountable to us. He's accountable only to his own promise. And when God makes a promise, the promise is going to be kept. We know that the promise is going to be kept because he's decreed it. Because he exists outside of time, he's already seen the fulfillment. He's already fulfilled it in the future. We're still, we're, we're still living in the movie, if you will. We're still watching it unfold. Well, he can see the whole movie at one time. He wrote it. He directed it. He did all the camera work and all the lighting. He's the editor. It all belongs to him. He knows exactly what's going to happen, and he knows exactly what's going to happen when. Now, waiting is hard. Nobody said amen, but I'll assume there's an amen out there. Waiting is hard. We knew a man in California. He was in our church in California. He became convinced that Jesus would return at the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
there is a, uh, a Jewish Christian pastor and scholar, I think he's passed away now, by the name of Zola Levitt. And uh, Zola was a, a uh, raised in a Jewish home, became a Christian, was, was deeply knowledgeable of not only the, the Bible and the Old Testament, but of Jewish practice. And Zola, in, a, in a, a sermon that he gave, was talking about the feasts and how significant events in the life of the church coincide with some of the Jewish feasts. And he stopped in the sermon to say, wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus returned at the Feast of Tabernacles? Now, personally, I think Jesus was born at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Bible says he tabernacled among us. He, he became flesh. He literally tented among us. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. But wouldn't it be wonderful if, well, this man in our church said, Jesus is coming back at the Feast of Tabernacles. Whatever year it will be, it will happen at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Feast of Tabernacles on, on our English calendar happens between mid-September and mid-October, generally. And so around July, he would start to vibrate a little bit. He'd start getting really excited. And it would build and build and build and build and build. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a one-week feast. And he would, so we always saw him on a Sunday. He would spend that week higher than a kite. And in case you didn't notice, Jesus didn't come back on any of those Feasts of Tabernacles. And he crashed really hard. About the first of the year, he would start climbing out of this hole he'd dug for himself. And then for about six months, he would just kind of get through. And then about July or August, he'd start winding himself up again. Waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. He shouldn't have been trying to pick a date that way, but I appreciate the fact that waiting is hard. We don't want the Lord to wait. We want him to come back. So Peter deals with this very issue in 2 Peter 3. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God exists outside of time. We look at a a 24-hour period of time as a 24-hour period of time. God can stretch that out and see every detail with such detail that we can't imagine you'd ever get through. He can compress a thousand years down to the point where it, it passes in the course of a day. Time is malleable to him. It, it's, it's moldable to him. He can do what he wants with it. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. That the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What Peter is saying is that Patience is not the same as procrastination. God is patient, but he's not procrastinating. He's not putting it off. 
being deliberate is not the same as delaying. God is being deliberate about his time. He has a time set according to his own knowledge and his own sovereignty and his decree. That doesn't mean that he's delaying. It's unfolding as he wills. Jesus will return at the perfect moment. For you and I now, as as we look into the future, tomorrow's foggy. The rest of it's black. We can't see into it. We can't penetrate it. We can make guesses about what will happen. We can look at weather forecasts and we can look at other things and say, I expect this to happen. I I hope that this will happen. But we, we don't actually know. We've got no idea what the rest of the day holds. And so we can't have any idea of when Jesus will actually return. We just kind of look off into this murk and try not to worry about the when. Let him deal with the when. But I believe that this is true. I believe that after his return, we will look back at his return as a historical event and we will say it happened at the perfect moment that was not the perfect moment no we'll look back at that historical event i know it will it will we'll look back at that that historical reality of jesus return and we will know that he came at the perfect moment that it was the fullness of time that he couldn't have come at any any other time we'll know it then Just like we look back now, we look at his birth and his life and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and we say it was the perfect time. It was at the perfect time. The Greek language had become the the language of most of the world. The Romans had built roads in order to facilitate their military and trade, and so the spread of the gospel happened through that means. The Romans had developed something of a postal system It wasn't a government system, but they had the ability for that. It was the perfect time for him to come. It was the perfect time. The when ultimately is none of our business. What do we do in the meantime is our business. Peter goes on there in, in verses 11 to 13 to say, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, since God is going to bring all things to an end, What sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? We should live in holiness and godliness because Jesus is coming back and we don't know when he's coming back. We should live live waiting for that day, looking for that day which obviously raises the issue of when. We've got to keep that under control, but we shouldn't give up our hope. We should be hastening the day. Now, I don't think that we can speed up the second coming of Christ. I think that God has set that in his time. I think the sense of hastening here is being eager for it, wanting him to come back, seeing that as the the event of all events for our lives and for what happens from here on out. We get impatient for the Lord to return, And that's understandable. When he returns, all of our problems are solved. They're they're done with. But we're to wait patiently. We're to wait graciously. In a sense, what we're to do is, is 
live in the reality of the millennial kingdom. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, and it's a big if, but if you've been born again in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As you live here, in other words, live as though the promise has already been fulfilled. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Now, there, there are different interpretations of end times events. I take a fairly literal view. I believe that Jesus will return after a seven-year period of tribulation, that with his return, he will establish his kingdom on earth. I believe that all of those who have been born again in Christ, all of those who are faithful Israel, will return with him in perfected, glorified bodies and will live with him for a thousand years on this earth. And that during that time, there will continue to be mortal people, people who are born as they're, they're born now, who will continue to live. And during that thousand-year period of time, Jesus will be reigning physically from Jerusalem, reigning over the earth, and that we as resurrected, glorified saints will be serving him. And we, we will be doing that to worship him and to proclaim his word and his justice to the people who live on this earth. What Colossians 3 seems to be saying with seek the things that are above, set your mind on things that are above, is is if Jesus is coming back to establish a millennial kingdom where you and your glorified state are serving him, why not live in that reality today? I I don't know what the millennium is going to look like for us as, as glorified saints. I cannot begin what it would be like to not get tired, to not be tempted by sin, to, to not have a, a battle of, of wanting to rebel, of not being selfish. I can't imagine not having conflict. I can't imagine all the things that are going to happen. But why not maybe imagine what you might do during the millennium and then do that? There are going to be people who are born as they are born today during the millennial kingdom. They're going to need to trust in Jesus for salvation. There are people today who need to trust in Jesus for salvation. The weird thing is, is that there will be people during the millennial kingdom who reject him. He will be physically ruling in Jerusalem, and there will be people who say he's not my savior. Stunning. And what we'll say to them is, how can you say that? He's right there. He's right there. You can, you can jump on a plane, jump on a boat, go to Israel, go to Jerusalem and, and see the temple. He's reigning in the temple. And you can look right in, you can, you can see him. How could you doubt him? Well, what if we had that kind of boldness today and just said, you know that there's a God, you know that there's a Savior. How could you doubt him? Don't be doubting. Believe. What will you do during the millennial kingdom? Maybe you'll be teaching. Teach. Maybe you'll be blessing people and encouraging them. Bless them and encourage them. Why don't you live today like like you're in the millennium? Why don't you live today like Jesus is reigning? Because he is. Why don't you live today like Jesus is Lord? Because he is. 
Why don't you live like the promises he's made to you have been fulfilled? Because as far as he's concerned, they have been. There's no doubt. There's no question that he'll keep his promises. There's no doubt. You can't trust me. Thursday, I think, Thursdays are busy days for Linda. I think it was Thursday I was sitting in my office, which looks very much like our living room, working on my computer, and Linda said, oh, I put clothes in the, in the washer. Would you put them in the dryer in about an hour? Sure. No. Went in this ear. It didn't even make it to the other ear. It, it started in this ear and bounced back out. Tripped over some earwax, just slipped right on out. There's a word picture for you. You can't trust my promises. I can't trust your promises. Our promises are subject to change. Our promises are subject to change through things that aren't our fault. We're going to have church next Sunday. We're going to celebrate Easter Sunday, celebrate the risen Christ, yeah? But what happens if Saturday night it starts to snow and 6 o'clock Saturday morning there's a foot of snow on the ground? Oh, I'm not going to be here. You might not be here either. We'll send grace to, huh? We'll send grace to unlock and make coffee for everybody. Things can happen. But nothing will prevent the Lord from fulfilling his word. We can live as though it's already happened because it's going to. We can live with that kind of confidence and faith. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your graciousness to us. Lord, probably the hardest thing that we have to do is to live by faith and not by sight. To measure ourselves and those around us and the world in which we live by what you have said in your word and not by what we think. And to live according to what you have promised to do and not according to what we think might be. You spoke to the people of Israel and told them that they could rejoice and shout aloud more than five centuries before you fulfilled the promise. It's been 20 centuries, Jesus, since you told your disciples that you would come for us. But you are surely coming for us. And we don't need to doubt that. Would you help us to seek the things that are above where you are and to set our minds on things that are above? Would you help us to live as though we are in the millennial kingdom now, serving you, loving others, worshiping you, devoted to you. We thank you for your encouragement to us and your love for us. Bless us, Lord, as we go this week and let us be in memory of your death and your resurrection and rejoice in that gift of life that you've given us. Jesus, in your holy name we pray. Amen.